I always felt an obligation to listen to the record in totality. And I wonder if that's why I like it the best, because I seem to, it was, I, I, I was almost like, well, they're, they're trying to do something here. I should at least try to. Like, they're, they're, they're not just giving 14 songs out, and they're like, well, hopefully you like all 14. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast. Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. It is Vitology, Ology, Part 3. Talking about Vitology. The name of this podcast is Vitology. Vitology, Vitology, Vitology. If you haven't been listening to this podcast for the last couple weeks, we've been doing this thing. It's a Pearl Jam series where we're going through every album. I'm bringing on guests, we're dissecting the records, we're talking about the history of Pearl Jam, we're talking about Jeff Amen's floppy hats, we're talking about the drummers who keep coming and going, all of the minutiae of Pearl Jam history, leading up to the band being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in April. It's been a really fun process, and I gotta say that this episode right here, this might be among the most anticipated of the Vitalogyology episodes. I mean, first of all, we have Chuck Klosterman coming on. Chuck is always a big guest here on the Celebration Rock podcast. So that's so it's big for that reason. But it's also big because we're talking about Pearl Jam's third record, which again is called Vitalogy. And, you know, we've talked a lot in these episodes, you know, the first two episodes of this series about how Pearl Jam, when they came out with 10, you know, they weren't the band that they were going to become at that point. They had really just formed. Uh, you know, they they played their first rehearsal in October of 90 and they put out 10 in the summer of 91. And then they spent a couple years on the road. And then they record Versus and Versus is a, an enormous record. And then they go back on the road. And during that time, there was a power shift going on in the band where at the beginning of the band the power rested with essentially the ex the ex members of Mother Love Bone Stone Gossard and Jeff Amitt. you know Stone Gossard started the band you know by writing a lot of the songs that would become the biggest songs of Pearl Jam's career and they basically brought Eddie Vedder in at the end you know Eddie Vedder was a guy working in you know he was in a band in San Diego he was surfing and he happened to get this demo tape from his friend Jack Irons, who was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers at the time, and then, of course, joined Pearl Jam um, in the mid-90s. But Eddie Vedder was brought in, essentially a guy off the street, a guy with no, pedig- with no pedigree. You know, he was an outsider to the Seattle music scene. And he ends up becoming a huge star. You know, you know by the time 10... 
is becoming, you know, the 10 that we know, like the iconic record. You know, Eddie Vedder is the face of the band. And on Versus, he started to take a little bit more creative control. You know, there's songs on Versus that probably wouldn't have been on 10. You know, Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. Or, you know, a song like that. That comes from Eddie Vedder. That's not really a Stone Gossard or Jeff Amitt type song. Well, with Vitology, the shift in the band, you know, in terms of who was going to be in control, um, it really came to a head. At this point, Eddie Vedder assumed control of Pearl Jam. And when I say assumed control of Pearl Jam, what I mean is that he was the guy, you know, the buck stopped with him. You know, like when they were in the studio, a song wasn't done until Eddie Vedder said it was done. He was the one that was finishing everything off. And that, you know, probably unavoidably created a lot of tension during the making of this record. Uh, you know, there's a story about how Stone Gossard almost quit the band during this time. Um, you know, and Jeff Amon has talked about how communication essentially broke down between the members. Um, and it seems like a lot of this can be attributed to the fact that, you know, they were watching this guy that they had hired, that they had taken off the street, you know, take over the band. You know, they were not the people in charge anymore. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons why this sort of thing happens. I mean, there's the old saying about lead singers, you know, the lead singer disease, LSD, you know, that afflicts every band, where you have one person out in front who is taking up most of the attention, and uh, people start to just sort of naturally assume that the other people in the band are just sort of standing behind him and are the backing musicians. And to a degree... I, at least in terms of public perception, I think that there was a feeling that Pearl Jam was like that. You know, at least among casual fans of the band, that you know Eddie Vedder was the guy in the Jeremy video. You know, he was the, the, the you know the great-looking lead singer guy out front, and um, you know, I think if Pearl Jam had been a different kind of band, or if Eddie Vedder had been a different kind of person, um, that could have been disastrous for Pearl Jam. Uh, creatively and also just in terms of keeping them together. Um, it's to Pearl Jam's benefit that Eddie Vedder, I think, one, respected that they were a band and wanted to maintain that band identity. And, and two, that he, um, I think it's been proven that he had good instincts. Um, you know, the, the, the big thing with Pearl Jam when we talk about them is that, you know, there was this period... You know, when 10 comes out, when they're this enormous band, they're making music videos, the songs are very poppy, very accessible. And then there seems to be a shift towards music that is a lot less accessible. And with Vitology, you can see that process. You know, Vitology is a record where, in a way, this is where Pearl Jam started to break away from being a superstar band and becoming more of the sort of cult band that they would become later on in the decade and then into the 21st century. Um, I mean, it's weird to talk about Vitology in those terms because, you know, like, Vitology was a huge selling record. You know, just as Versus, you know, Versus sold 950,000 copies in its first week. Well, Vitology sold, you know, eight, 877,000 records in its first week. You know, so 
a hugely successful record. But I would venture to guess that a lot of those records that were bought the day Vitalogy came out ended up in UCD bins not too long afterward. <laughs> because, you know, the people that came into Pearl Jam because they liked Evenflow, there was a lot on Vitalogy to turn them off. You know, you had a song like uh, like Bugs, you know, the accordion-driven song. You had that incredibly weird song at the end, which is sort of like Pearl Jam's version of Revolution Number no. 9, you know, the Hey Foxy, Whole Mama song. You know, a song that, like, if you're a serious Pearl Jam fan, maybe you've listened to more than once, but I'm guessing that most people who love Vitalogy even probably haven't played that song more than once. Um, but for the people who love Vitalogy, the curveballs on this record, the, the, the songs that seem to be half-baked, you know, a song like Satan's Bed, for instance, which is a song I love, but it sounds like a song that was written 15 minutes after it was recorded. You know, like, it sounds like, you know, they, it, I mean, Pearl Jam has even admitted that they recorded a lot of these songs, you know, 20 minutes or so after they were, after they were, for, were first kind of put together. You know, this is a very on the fly record. It's a record about capturing flaws. It's a record about really capturing an atmosphere in the studio that seemed to be pretty freewheeling. You know, it wasn't about creating a perfect rock record the way that 10 is a perfect rock record. It's about record. It's about creating an album with nooks and crannies, a record where no two fans are going to have the same favorite song because you really want to burrow into this album and find your own space. You know, that's the kind of record that this is, and it's the kind of record that Eddie Vedder wanted to make. Um, and in the short term, I think it did alienate a lot of Pearl Jam fans. Uh, there were a lot of people that came on board with this band kind of early on when they were an MTV band, and this, I think, was the beginning of the, de of the departure point for them. Um, but I think this record is also... It marks the beginning of Pearl Jam turning into a band that, for the people that love them, this is the band that they want Pearl Jam to be. Uh, you, know, like, you know, just anecdotally, when I talk to Pearl Jam fans, this is the record that comes up as their favorite record. It's not the most perfect Pearl Jam record, um, but it's, I think for Pearl Jam fans, it's the most lovable because of that willingness to create something that is flawed and that has a texture to it that not everyone is going to like, uh, a record that you have to live with for a long time in order to understand. You know, records like that tend to be the records that serious fans really love because um, there's something kind of endearing about a record that isn't meant for everyone. You know, there's, I mean, the anthem of this album is, is that song not for you? You know, this idea that, you know, there's a table and it's not meant for everyone. You know, the, you, know in, you know, we're creating a culture here that, um, that's unique and isn't meant to be commodified. Um, that's the stand that I think Eddie Vedder wanted to take in the band. I think it created a lot of attention early on, but um, if, if you look at the totality of Pearl Jam's career, um, their willingness to make this record, uh, it seems like it was a real sort of do-or-die moment for them. And uh, if they had just made another record like Versus instead of a record like this, um, I don't know if Pearl Jam would either be around or if they would be as relevant. We may be, you know, if they had just kind of replicated what had already worked, you know, we may be talking about Pearl Jam strictly as a 90s phenomenon, not as a sort of all-time rock band. Um, 
So to me, that's the narrative of this record. That's what makes this record fascinating. And uh, bringing Chuck into the conversation was really fun for me. I, I was curious to hear his thoughts on this record, and he didn't disappoint. So uh, let's get into it. Let's talk about Vitology here on Vitalogyology. Uh, here's me and Chuck Klosterman. Chuck, when I approached you about whether you wanted to be involved in this in this project, you immediately volunteered to talk about Vitology. And I'm wondering why that was the album that immediately sprang to mind for you. Well, it's my favorite of their albums by far, for sure. Um, I think it's probably the most interesting period of the band. Um, I don't know. I, 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 is it... Is, I kind of feel like my opinion is conventional now. I mean, this is conventionally seen as their best record, isn't it? Or am I wrong about this? You've thought about this more than I. I get the sense that the average person who's not a sort of an obsessive Pearl Jam fan or a completely casual music fan would say... That, that that Vitology is their best record? Or is that not the conventional wisdom? No, I would say it's either that or 10. I mean, I think that the ca- like the, the, the very casual Pearl Jam fan who only knows the songs on the radio and remembers them, you know, re- remembers seeing Pearl Jam on MTV all the time when they were a teenager, they might lean more towards 10 as like sort of the nostalgic choice. But I think people that were maybe buying Pearl Jam albums at that time it seems like Vitology is the consensus choice for people. Well, I mean, plus, you know, okay, if you're if you're a band and, and your first record is clearly your best, um, that sort of reflects something about what kind of band you are, okay? And then if you're the kind of group whose second best record is their second album, like I guess Radiohead or whatever, that says something, too. I think that for a group like Pearl Jam that has existed for so long... Um, and has, you know, in some ways there's a unifying element to their music, but it really has sort of changed over time. It seems like that that the third record is kind of where they actually became the group that when we think about what Pearl Jam is outside of something that was on MTV or something on the radio, this is kind of the record that it, that they are. Right. I would say that that for me that's absolutely correct. I mean, what's interesting about Ten is that they weren't a band for that long when that came out, and it just blew up, and they became one of the biggest bands in the world. But they were still kind of figuring out the inner dynamics of the band. I mean, Vitalogy was definitely the point where Eddie Vedder took the band over, and he became the sort of the defining person in the band. Well, it was also where you sort of the the manifestation of of like the central problem Pearl Jam seems to have with themselves. The idea that they are a major rock band and that if you are a major, major rock band, um, that is a signifier for other things, you know? And and they actively fought against it on this album, but it didn't work. Like the album was huge because there was still, you know, kind of the institution and mechanism of MTV playing the videos from the early records constantly. They were still playing Jeremy and stuff in, in 1994. Um, it wasn't really until after this record that their kind of casual popularity started to fade. Right. I mean, you said that this was your favorite album by far, and you said it's also the most interesting. I mean, is that sort of like a retrospective judgment, or did you feel that at the time? 
Well, let's see. When the first Pearl Jam record came out, uh, it was, you know, it predated a lot of the other grunge records, but it kind of feels like it all happened at the same time. And uh, and all these albums were coming out in this sort of new... uh, uh, and direction of music was happening and and I think everyone kind of at the time was like well these guys are good this seems like a, like a more affable accessible kind of music than Nirvana maybe you know even Nirvana was huge and they had made an accessible record the guys in Pearl Jam seem more like just normal guys right when Versus came out, I remember buying that record at midnight that was something you did in those days <laughs> and there was some surprise certainly by me of how big it was that the that it sold something like eight hundred and seventy seven thousand albums or whatever um you know in the first week, which at the time was just an impossible number, and it seemed kind of close to the first album, although um not quite as good i I, I don't think there were many people who preferred verses to the first record there was I'm sure some, but um it almost seemed as though, well, Pearl Jam's going to try to do this. They're going to try to be this kind of band, making this kind of record, and we'll see how long this lasts. And then Vitology was very, very different. They just seemed like they were completely in a different mental spot. It came out on vinyl, and, and you know, in 1994, I did not own a record player. Not many people really did. I had to buy the album, because I was working in a newspaper, give it to a guy, a photographer. <laughs> Somebody in our photo department had a you know, record player. He dubbed it on the cassette, and I reviewed that dubbed cassette, uh, <laughs> and then bought the CD when it came out the next week. Yeah, because the vinyl came out like two weeks earlier, right, or something like that. Either a week or two weeks, something like that. Maybe it was two weeks, but it seemed like a week in my mind. Right. Um, and then you know, he bought the CD. Uh, it was a real annoying packaging. <laughs> Screwed up your CD collection, and it wasn't you know, and it got beat up real bad because it wasn't hired plastic. Uh, but I liked, I just liked the music. I think almost. I thought it, I, I was maybe if maybe if I had been older and I had had more experience with any kind of experimental music, maybe I, this record would have seemed kind of you know uh, almost cliche. But it didn't seem cliche to me at the time. And I definitely think that the best song. Pearl Jam ever made was Corduroy. Right. And they seem to think that too because when they made those 72 live albums, I think Corduroy is on every one. Right. I think that's the only song that it, that's on every single record. Speaking of which, you know, you're talking to all these people about different Pearl Jam uh, records. Are you going to talk to 72 different <laughs> people about the live albums? No, I think I'm going to consolidate that into one <laughs> podcast. It's also going to be like uh, we're doing like Riot Act and Binaural in the same one, as well as the 72 live albums. So there is going to be one episode where there's like 74 albums being discussed. So I guess that would just be a longer episode than these other ones. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's probably more interest in Vitalogy by itself than those 74 combined. So I feel like it justifies its own episode. Uh, yes, probably. So who uh, <laughs> who you're talking to on the for the first two records? Um, I'm talking to Mark Pellington, who directed the Jeremy video. We're gonna, he's gonna, he's in the ten episode, and then uh, Dave Hartley from the War on Drugs. We're, we're gonna talk about uh-huh. verses, because he was like me. See, I disagree with you a little bit about verses. I actually preferred verses to ten, and maybe this was because I was so wrapped up in the alt rock 
politics of the time and that versus versus was like a little less pop oriented, but it sounded a lot better. Like Brendan O'Brien did the second one. He did verses and it sounded like Pearl Jam did live. Like when you saw live clips, it, it had more of a live sound. And I mean, I feel like even at that time, there were people, certainly me, you know, because I was wrapped up in sort of the Nirvana versus Pearl Jam comparisons. And I think early on, people who were wrapped up in that slighted Pearl Jam because 10 is such a glossy, slick, catchy record. I mean, I, I love 10 in retrospect, but at the time it seemed like maybe a little too slick for people. And Versus, I think, was the first time that they kind of tried to rough it up like in a self-conscious way. You know, there's like kind of grittier sounding songs on there. There's songs like where where Pearl Jam is trying to sound like a punk band, you know, which is something they tried to do in the early 90s. I don't think always successfully because I think at heart they're a great arena rock band. And when they try to sound like a punk band, it's not as, as effective. But at the time, I actually, I, I did prefer Versus, I think, to 10. And I, 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 and I still kind of like it. The, I, Versus and Vitalogy kind of go back and forth for me as, as, for, as, for, as to what's my favorite Pearl Jam album. The first Pearl Jam record, you know, uh, it was, it, it, I mean, they're just they're interesting band to think about in this way because, you know, they, they sort of illustrate the contradiction between the idea of there was, that this was alternative music and then these bands were so massive that that they were sort of being listened to by everybody like there was there there really wasn't anything that being a Pearl Jam fan really said about a person you know right. like, they, they were they were in, in the same way that being into Van Halen in 1984 didn't say anything about a person really like there were just these big records but their philosoph their philosophy was so different in the sense that the, they, they hoped that that the kind of people who were gravitating toward their music sort of shared this ideology that they were still kind of working out, you know? Right. Um, and that, uh, I think it, by, like, by 1994, like, that kind of it consumed the entire band. Like, it, it, it almost seemed as though they were more of an ideology than a band at that point. <laughs> well, and, I mean... I remember feeling at the time that Vitalogy was Pearl Jam's version of In Utero, or that they were somehow still kind of reacting to Kurt Cobain's death, you know, because it did seem like a record where, uh, like In Utero, it's sort of self-consciously raw. There are songs on there that are just sort of noisy or overtly experimental, you know, like a song, like that last song, Hey, Foxy, Mop, Handle Mama, you know, that whatever that song is, um, where... You know, there was that sort of thing in the 90s where, where big bands seemed to be kind of consciously trying to turn off some sort of archetypical mainstream fan, you know, by doing weird things. And Vitalogy was Pearl Jam's version of that. And I think in a way it's even, I think in a way it's even more abrasive than In Utero because like In Utero doesn't have anything like Bugs on it, for instance, like where it's just Eddie Vedder playing an accordion. And it's almost like he's trolling the audience in a way that just wants hard rock songs. Well, it kind of is because, I mean, okay, yeah, on the one hand, there's uh, there's nothing like that on in Europe. But, I mean, like, like Bugs is a dumb song. <laughs> like, it, it, that's like a dumb thing to have on the record. It, it's, I, uh, it's, it, it makes sense that it's on there because 
uh, you know, or like the, the song where he just like spells privacy and all these things. It's like <laughs> there's a, there's a conceptual nature to this that sort of I guess necessitates that kind of material. But certainly, if you're playing the record, you're not looking forward to getting to the song bugs. Nor are you saying like I can't believe I'm hearing this. <laughs> like it's not like hearing you know uh, like you know something on the White Album or whatever, where it was like, just is the number nine over and over again? Like, what does this mean? How can explain this? This is insane. This is, it's not like that. Well, that last song, yeah, but, though, was, I always felt like that was their Revolution 9, like that Foxy Mop Handle Mama song, which, which I don't think I've heard since 1994. I probably listened to it once and then never again. It's like the track after Immortality. No, it's the last, yeah, it's, like, it's like listed as like eight minutes long or something. Right, and, it, and it's just sort of this like weird sound collage song see this is the thing like with me and vitology i i'm always tempted to also call it my favorite but the thing that uh, that's a sticking point with me is that i think it has some of the best pearl jam songs like you know you mentioned corduroy i actually agree that's probably my favorite pearl jam song like i love the song nothing man i love the song last exit um tremor christ i think those are all great songs but it also has some of the worst songs that they ever did i mean it's a very scattershot album i think deliberately so it seems like they were like Eddie Vedder wanted to create the kind of classic rock album experience of listening to the White Album or something, where you have a little bit of everything, and some songs are great and some songs are terrible, but it's more about sort of the atmosphere of the album. So I think in that way, like it is an interesting album, but I also feel like can it be the best when it has a song like Bugs on it? <laughs> you know? Well, uh, yeah, because uh, here's why I would say it can. Um, the other albums. You're right, it don't have any, like the first two records don't have anything like this on it, like Bugs on it or whatever. Um, but at the same time, if you're listening to it, and during the, if we're using kind of the parlance of the time, if you're listening to it on CD, um, you would skip over the songs you didn't like on those first records. Or, or if you got halfway through one, you know, I didn't like, I remember the song Rats, so I was like, hey, I'm not I'm sick of this song, <laughs> I go to the next song. Right. Um, but because there's sort of the arch nature to, I guess for lack of a better term, like the dumbness of some of these ideas, I always felt an obligation to listen to the record in totality. And I wonder if that's why I like it the best, because I seem to, it was, I, I, I was almost like, well, they're, they're trying to do something here, I should at least try to. Like they're, they're, they're not just giving 14 songs out, and they're like, well, hopefully you like all 14, but if you only like nine, that's... It's like they're, they're kind of saying, like, this is, a, this is a... We're doing... We're trying to be the who or whatever. You're supposed to have this experience. You can play this album in your house. Maybe do other things while you're playing it, but play the whole thing, you know? I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure how I, I inferred that message, or you know, but I somehow took away this idea that that I should be listening to the whole thing because this, you know, they clearly put time and effort into the sequencing of these songs and sort of how these songs were supposed to sort of intertwine. And that, like, like the song where he just spells privacy over and over again, that's a little heavy-handed, I guess, now, but, I mean, that is a lot of what the record is about. And, and uh, I... I just think that they thought more about this album. I don't know. You asked me if it's retrospective. I guess maybe it is. Although I really liked it at the time. I was. I mean, I I named it album of the year in 1994 for the. Well, I did like my end of year list for the paper. I remember that. 
because I remember my coworker being like, it was stupid you did that. <laughs> I remember because he was like, that record's terrible. But, you know, uh, but I, I liked it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you said something interesting earlier about how the ideology of the band or even the ideology of the time, sort of the fame politics of the time, were really kind of taking over at that point and how that looms large on this record. Obviously, things have changed a lot since the early 90s in, in culture and certainly rock and roll. How has that aged for you Like when you listen to the record now? I mean, does it seem, does that still seem interesting or does it date the record to the time? Um, well, I will say this. It doesn't seem musically that dated to me. Right. It, I mean, it doesn't, uh, uh, I, you know, where it's like, I don't know, like Alice in Chains record or something from that period might seem very much, even, you know, regardless if it's good or bad. I mean, something can be dated and still be good. Right. It just it will seem sometimes like, well, that's what people were definitely doing at that time. I don't know if I would say that about Phytology as much. Um the issue of like privacy i guess from the perspective of a major rock star um that's not really a concern anymore like you don't you don't really see a lot of major pop artists bemoaning celebrity in this way because if now if you're a famous pop star you're absolutely complicit in that fame like you're 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 using social media you're doing all of these things um if you if you if you just choose not to be involved with social media you're not going to be that famous you know so it would be it would be difficult to imagine someone doing an album like for example if taylor swift or whatever did an entire album about how she just feels like you know she's constantly under the microscope and her autonomy as a person has been taken away um it would be uh, very easy to sort of criticize that and say like well this is all her own fault you know people criticized pearl jam they were like well if you don't want fame you shouldn't be doing this but they kind of went to remarkable lengths not to be famous right like i i can't imagine what more they could have done you know besides just quitting i mean they were making no videos they had that bizarre lawsuit with with I shouldn't even say it's bizarre. They had a lawsuit with with Ticketmaster, uh, and then they tried to tour on non sort of Ticketmaster venues, which was like this this kind of built in problem. I mean, what they were basically saying is Ticketmaster has monopoly on all the venues you can play live. Okay, you can't be a band without playing these venues. So then they tried to do so. They tried to tour without going to the Ticketmaster locations, and if they would have succeeded, it would have invalidated their lawsuit. <laughs> right. Like if they would have toured and very successfully, it would have proved that pro- that Ticketmaster does not have a, a monopoly. So they had to tour for Vitology and fail in order to prove their argument about the pre-tours. You know, the tours before Vitology were sort of shackled by this institution, and um, you know, I. Uh, I would say that this period was Eddie Vedder at his least funny, <laughs> and as a Wait, like, but like when was he funny? Is but there you like know a... what? He was funny. He was in singles, and he's funny in that movie. Right. You saw, I saw him on Headbangers Ball. 
when it was when oddly they were still putting kind of you know Kid Bangers Ball still existed and grunge bands were on there. He's incredibly playful in this thing. This would be like night. This has probably been ninety two or ninety three or whatever. Right. And then you know you'll see him interviewed now, or you'll see him give an inter you know a, a speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he kind of is funny. Right. But he really is sort of framed as a humorless person because of this specific period. Um, you know, he just seemed like just the least fun possible person, and that has sort of stayed with him. And I don't really know. I don't think he is that way. I think that I think that he uh, is you know, uh, probably a kind of a charming person, but he was just completely unfunny during this period. Well, and and I felt this at the time, and and I still think it's true when I listen to the record now that I think that Kurt Cobain's suicide is evident on this record. Uh, either explicitly or or sort of in the background. I mean, I, the song "Last Exit," for instance, um, you know, the, it's lyrically murky, but you can definitely one interpretation you can make of that song is that it's a song about suicide. And then you have the last song before the sound collage weird song that no one listens to, "Immortality," uh, which is uh, also kind of talking about the the weight of fame and and sort of mortality and whether it's all worth it. And, you mentioned that song. I think it's called "Pry 2. That's where he spells privacy yes. over and over again. And you know, and he's obviously talking about himself. But I also feel like, you know, you don't have to make a leap to also see references to Kurt Cobain when he talks about stuff like that. I mean, do you feel like that is evident on this record when you hear it? Was that yeah, something? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you you've written about this in your book. I think I've probably written about it somewhere. We're not the only people. He, he was in this totally complicated position where there are two major bands in the same scene and in a larger sense in the world at the time and they have a lot of the same fans and one band sort of likes the other one and the other band seems to hate the other one and this kind of goes on and and Pearl Jam kind of takes the, the high road and never really criticizes Nirvana in any meaningful way, um, always just sort of expresses befuddlement uh, over, you know, why this why this guy keeps talking about how terrible and fake my band is, there's nothing I can do about it, I don't want this to be the case. And then Cobain dies, so he's just got to kind of keep doing it forever. He's got to always sort of like, he's always got to act as though... Uh, uh, that he wants this guy to be his friend, but this guy will never be his friend now because the guy is dead. (laughs) But he's thinking about it constantly, and he gets asked about it constantly. I mean, he just gets, you know, that that during that time, you know, many musicians, during an interview, you would ask them about Kurt Cobain's death or whatever, but Pearl Jam always did. Um, And uh, I, I, I think he also thought, like, well, this guy is... This guy spent his whole career trying to convince people he's not like me, but actually maybe we are the same. I'm sure he thought that, you know. Right. You know, it's you. You made references to this before, you know, about how this was Eddie Vedder at his, at his least funny or most humorless. Excuse me, at his least funny and most humorless. Um, this was also like the biggest Pearl Jam record that there was. I mean, this is obvi- this is probably the peak of their popularity. 
Um, and then after that, you know, starting with no code, uh, their profile as a mainstream band started to go down. Like for you, like, was there a departure point at all? Like, did you continue to stay interested in Pearl Jam after Vitology or did you start to kind of lose interest at this point? I mean, cause there did seem to be a sense at the time that, um, maybe people got tired of Pearl Jam, you know, well, like the Ticketmaster thing, it made it hard to see them live, you know, the sort of nonstop talking about, you know, the, the rigors of fame. I mean, people tend to get tired of that after a while. Um, like, what was your perspective on that? Well, I mean, I get, you know, you, it's true. I mean, their biggest album, I guess it was their biggest album. But that's a little bit misleading. I mean, it's their biggest album, kind of building off the previous two records and it's still prior to the release of Vitology they they it seemed like they were a relatively visible band mm-hmm. i mean not just because they were still on MTV but because all those songs were still on the radio um you know the songs on Vitology were not on the radio as much right uh well there's it, better man i guess would be a big one but yeah well, i mean it wasn't that they was that they weren't there at all, but not as much as the previous ones. Right. Um, so they, when this record came out, even though it sold a lot, particularly, you know, the first month or whatever it was out, I mean, it was a you know, huge selling record, despite not really having a bunch of singles or anything. I think they'll, I bet, you know, I seem to recall seeing this record a lot at used record stores. I think a <laughs> lot of people sold this album back. And, uh, when they didn't make any videos and didn't do anything to promote it, it actually seemed pretty annoyed by people who sort of expected them to. I think that they really did convince people. It's like, we're doing this now. Like, we're not that kind of band anymore. We're a different band now. And uh, audiences were like, well, okay, that's all right. I mean, it's not like they they just sort of moved on to other things, listened to Oasis or whatever, you know, and, and Britpop kind of came in and that was uh, sort of occupied, I think, the space that they had sort of been in before. Uh, did I lose interest in them? Well, they were harder to keep track of. I mean, you know, maybe sometimes they'd be in spin, but that's about it. You wouldn't you'd, you'd hear about them working on a new album, but they... I mean, there were limited ways to look for a band or follow a band then, you know? I mean, you couldn't go on the internet so much and kind of keep what there, even the internet existed, but you couldn't you couldn't follow a band in that way exclusively in 1995. Right. So if they, if they chose not to sort of be in the public eye, they actually weren't, you know? But like you mentioned earlier that you bought Versus like at midnight, right away and, and i guess you bought vitology early because you had to you had to write about it but i mean like when when no code came out were you still like a night of the release fan at that point i got i got that as a as an advance but by this time i was working as a journalist so it's always confusing like like yield i got it as an advance I, you know uh, um i feel like uh like no code i got on cassette or something as a cassette advance pretty early they would do that uh and i mean i always i always listen to them i feel like okay the record that comes after vitology is no code right yeah yeah and 
Am I getting this wrong? Okay, so it was no code and then yield? Yes. I'm missing one. No code, to me, if I recall, it almost seemed like a... You know there's that Creedence Clearwater Revival record where, like, John Fogarty gets so annoyed with the other guys in the band for saying that, like, they want, uh, you know, that, that, you know, we need to be involved, too. So he's like, okay, fine. You write songs, too. We'll all write two songs. <laughs> like, that's that's what sort of, that's what No Code seemed like to me, because it seemed like some of the songs on there didn't have anything to do with the band. It seemed like they were, like, an individual guy's interest. Like, I'm interested in this, so I'm going to do a song like this. And it's like, well, okay, we'll do that. And kind of seemed like a schizophrenic thing to me, and it just did not seem nearly as good. And uh, I, when Yield then came out, initially it seemed like, oh, maybe this is, this is like their first kind of return to form attempt or whatever. Uh they had songs on there that sort of seemed reminiscent of things they had done in the past. Um, but again, uh, kind of a weaker version of that music. And I kind of assumed that would be kind of the end of them. But then they just kept going. And now, you know, now they're really essentially a live act, and they're a great live act, and they're going to exist kind of in perpetuity. So did my interest go down? I guess it did but only relative to sort of the world at large. Right. Like I think, you know, I, I don't feel as though that I uh, felt, like, betrayed by them or anything <laughs> like that. I just, uh, it, it's, it was hard to, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I kind of thought they were, they wanted to break up. That they, seemed, they sort of seemed like a band who wanted to break up, but then they just never did. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like at the end of the 90s that if they were going to break up, that that was the time to do it. And then, like you say, I think I think you're right. They they reinvented themselves as a band that isn't a jam band, but they kind of operate like a jam band. And that it, the focus is on touring, fan service, and like playing different set lists every night, and kind of making that sort of the, the cornerstone of who you are as a band. And then you also put out records, but... It's really about seeing the band live. But yeah, and and also like uh, uh, I now when I kind of think about it, like looking back over how many years it has been, I guess this has been what you know, uh, how many years have they existed now? Thirty-five years or whatever. Um, you know, they, they uh, it's that writers I took so ninety. I guess a twenty, probably thirty years or whatever, twenty some years. Yeah. Um, they uh, they seem you know very musically strong. Like they 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 look like just you know they seem as though a band. It's like well, every guy in this group is talented and they they know what they're doing and and you know it's like they're very professional and all these things. Um, initially, I uh, we didn't think of them in that way because coming out of the eighties, none of the bands seemed as musically skilled because they weren't showy about it like you didn't like the virtuosity like wasn't in your face in the same way so you spent more time kind of thinking about what the band was trying to sort of i don't know project thematically like i i remember thinking like on the first three albums it was like well okay there's always one song where eddie vedder sings from the perspective of a woman right. he always does this Okay, and I was like, well, this is this is a meaningful thing, kind of in a way. Like he's he's a you know he he is uh, 
you know, there weren't a lot of other groups who would do that, or they would do it once. But he's like, I always do it at least once on every record. There was like this instructional element to their music, like spin the black circle, you know, like play records. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you how warm they are. Like, it's just this weird thing, you know. Um, because in so many, with a lot of these groups, you know, there's always the questions like, well, what is it, the text or the subtext, you know? And a lot of times Pearl Jam has a song, like Corduroy, I think it's kind of, in many ways, subtextual what he's talking about. Um, but like Spin the Black Circle, it's just like straight text. Like, I, like, there's, you can't be confused what this song is about. It's not a, it's not a metaphor, you know? Wasn't like the like corduroy? If, I think the story with that song is that like he saw a replica of his jacket being advertised in, by some department store or something, and he, that song is sort of talking about like an aspect of himself being commercialized outside of his control. And isn't that what that song is about? I, I think it probably is. I, like that? Is the, what I mostly remember, you know, because there was no lyrics on on a lot of these songs, right? And I thought. Well, this is, of course, I feel almost dumb saying this because this is like this is the kind of thing that you think is profound when you're young and it seems crazy later. But when I was listening to Corduroy, the, the line in it that I thought was just so genius and at the time very moving to me, what I thought he was saying is um, uh, everything has changed, absolutely nothing's changed. So it was like, you know, it's, you know, it's like, oh, everything is different, but everything is the same. And then, you know, so I thought that was a, you know, that meant something to me or whatever. I later find out that what the lyrics actually are is uh, everything has changed. Absolutely nothing's changed. Right. Um, which, I don't know, I guess, is it better or worse? <laughs> Somehow it seems worse to me. Like, it seems more straightforward the way it actually is. Um, although... The other version kind of seems like high school poetry, but that's like what a lot of good rock lyrics are, so I don't know. Um, I mean, what you say about this song is probably true. Like, that is the kind of thing that would probably really annoy him at the time. Well, and uh, the way you heard that lyric, that's the way I heard it, too. And then I think at some point, you know, someone corrected me and said, it's chains. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound better than changed. Because I heard it a very similar way. And it, it does seem, it's almost like the Who song, uh, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. Like I, I thought it was something like that, but it's, everything has changed. So I guess that means we're all confined in some way, and that's the way it's always going to be. I don't know. Parsing Eddie Vedder lyrics is not like, I feel like at some point, if you dig too deep in Eddie Vedder lyrics, uh, it will diminish the song. Like, I, I, I do think that he's a good rock lyricist, but he's not a guy that, like, I would want to read his verse in a book. Well, you know, it's, uh, okay, it's kind of off topic, but, uh, so I've been listening to the new Japan droids. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I don't know. I think I've talked about this view. It's like, I have, a, I have kind of a very kind of complicated relationship with that band. Um, in that I, I love their record and that I saw them live. I had a terrible experience seeing them live. So I was almost like wanting to give up on them entirely. I was, uh, like, like didn't want to listen to this new record almost like I just thought it'd be, but then I listened to it and it's great okay yeah um but the lyrics are are just like amazingly idiotic 
<laughs> I mean, like, it, I mean, when I say amazing, I mean, like, they're not like, you know, like, people will be like, oh, you like Kiss or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, Kiss lyrics are dumb, but there's almost a coolness to the dumbness or something. It's like, they're, like sometimes a band will have such sort of kind of, or like, you know, or like, you know, ACDC or something. The lyrics will be so dumb that there's like a charm to them. Right. And the Japan droids aren't like that at all. It's like he's, he's clearly trying to make lyrics that he thinks are pretty good but like they're, they're you know, um well they're very and, earnest i mean because I, I know that you i mean you've often made fun of bruce springsteen like you know born to run era bruce springsteen and i think his lyrics derive from that same thing like where they're steeped in sort of the purple prose of like rock mythology and it's very know. grandiose in that way so like if you want to like make fun of bruce springsteen saying like wrap your wings around these velvet rims and strap your, you know, that, that whole thing. I think Japan Joy's lyrics come from yeah, the same place. You no, know, his, his lyrics are way dumber than Spring. <laughs> but the, the sound, the guitar playing on that album, particularly the way his guitar sounds is just, uh, just fantastic. I think it's almost like, like that song about the, is it called the arc bar? Or yeah. Whatever? Like that's the, the beginning of that song is so cool. I, I know when I listen to it, I almost sort of dread the vocals coming in, you know. Um, so, it's a, so, but now what, the reason I bring this up is because, like, uh, uh, with Pearl Jam lyrics, I guess I don't so much feel that this way. But, but, but even you say, like, if you dig too deep or you drill too deep in these, it's going to sort of detract from the song. Um, I, if you dig, if you keep digging deep, though, it kind of comes out on the other end, like in the song "Not for You." Okay, so this is. You know, it's got like this dumb line in it. I hope I'm not going to get this wrong, but it's like he's like, you know, everything sacred comes from youth, right. or whatever. You know, um, you know, which is it's that's first of all, like that that's not true. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like uh, it it's it 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 almost seems like a kind of like the hokey part of of like of like Babel Riley or whatever, you know. Um, but yet then I, I think more about it, you know, and, and, and I, I think about what his life must have been like at the time of writing these songs where he's kind of in his twenties now and he is, sees this adoration from these oceans of young people, you know, like, like they were a, kind of a youth oriented band. They were not the kind of band that, um, at the time, that had like a huge amount of appeal uh, to sort of like the adult rock fan. The adult rock fan viewed them as a new band. Still, it's kind of not how it is now, but at the time, like somebody who was in you know it was thirty five or whatever would hear you know Pearl Jam and they'd be like, "That's kind of kids' music." Like I like the Talking Heads or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, right. uh, but so Eddie Vedder's writing these songs, and he's thinking about his life, and he's thinking about music, and he's looking at his fan base, and his fan base are these very uh, young people who are drawn to his sort of his to his earnesty, and like that that like like that the, the the song Black or whatever, the, the idea that 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 he is um, kind of speaking to like marginalized normal people. Like it's not like a David Bowie thing where he's sick, where like where he, you know they're, they're 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 he's addressing like you know like like the kid who's secretly gay or whatever. Pearl Jam was kind of like for just a normal kid who felt marginalized and felt alienated because that's sort of the process of of being a young person. So you know he's he's looking. 
looking at these people and he's trying to figure out like he goes like my life is real weird now it's like i have no privacy i'm very famous and i'm very rich and i don't associate myself as a famous or rich person you know how can this be meaningful to me well the reason it's meaningful is because i'm sort of plugging into these young people and that that there's a purity and a, an authenticity sort of into what they want. There's like a, like a religious nature to being a young person into music. Um, so that's like, when I think about it like that, I think like, well, these, this is this is kind of thoughtful music and it's maybe weirdly personal music. Right. You know, like much more personal than I guess I would have guessed at the time. Um, so as like a, as a lyricist, I do think he tries. You know, I do think he tries hard, and I think that he tries to get into himself in a way. Like, you know, they're uh, like you're a bigger Pearl Jam fan than I, but like, this, do they have a song about like the rigors of touring? I feel like they don't. I like, don't... I feel like a lot of the subject matter of rock songs are not sort of reflected in the Pearl Jam catalog, despite the fact that their catalog is huge. Yeah, there's, there's no, like, turn-the-page type Nothing song. Nothing like that. Like, yeah, because they would be a band, I think, that would go the opposite way and talk about how much they love to play and, uh, you know, be there for the fans. You know, so, yeah, there's but definitely no song like that. Do they have songs like that, though, either? Well, no, there's no song like that, but that's sort of always been their stance, I think, like in interviews or, you know, when they ever communicate with fans like i don't think they would ever write the song complaining about that part of being in a band it was always more about um the things that get in the way well, of the music yeah i'm know? not even saying complaining i'm saying that i think that a lot of times the reason you know like when bon jovi wrote like dead or alive <laughs> they weren't really saying like oh man this is so tough i think it was mainly like we got to write a song what the fuck is our life about now basically we ride around from city to city this is our life so this is the song we write. I think a lot of those touring songs sort of are kind of a manifestation of people trying to write about their life, but not thinking much beyond the superficial level of what they're literally doing on a day-to-day purpose. It does seem like Eddie Vedder, even though he was doing that, he was like touring around, he was like sitting on the bus trying to get his mind into the mind frame of like, an elderly woman, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like he was, tr- like he was trying to do something that was not uh, uh, just like right in front of him. So I, I you know, I, I guess uh, I don't know. It maybe didn't seem like the greatest defense of him, but I guess I, I, I do. I, I, I generally like what he sings about. Yeah, totally. So you, know, we, you talked about this being like your favorite Pearl Jam record. I think a lot of people would say favorite Pearl Jam record. Is this a great Pearl Jam record, or is this a great album of the '90s? Like, how would you compare this record to like other kind of big rock records of that era? Do you think it ranks with those? Sort of like a freestanding thing. Um, like, well, is it up there with OK Computer and Nevermind and you know no, and Loveless not, and all the big ones? No, not as good as that one either. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I I I don't think it's as good as is the first two Oasis records. Um, you know, I I don't, I mean, if I had to list my 10 favorite records of the 90s, I don't, a Pearl Jam album wouldn't make it. I mean, like, I, I like first band, The Moon by the Cardigans, more than I like this album. <laughs> but Pearl Jam is one of these things that, like, you don't separate the things out. It's the whole thing. 
it's like you know some writers write books and some writers it's like they're writing one long book over time right and i think pearl jam is like that that like it's it it it's uh it, and that's that's like a like a real compliment to them i would say as well like it, it if if you're taking this album and you're like okay we're just going to sort of listen to this is a separate thing and we're going to rank it against all these other things you know it doesn't probably hold up as well but i don't i don't know if i i, I guess this would be the case for 10 that 10 is probably the closest thing to that of an album where it's like well okay there's like there's a whole bunch of good songs on this and it's like it seems like has kind of a you know uh um uh kind of reflects what was happening in music and all that um i mean I don't know, but in terms of you saying, like, is this, like, a good record of the 90s, does it seem that, I mean, I guess thematically it seems 90-ish to me, but I don't know if songs-wise I think that. I just meant, like, of the decade. I mean, what you're saying, actually, I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's a good point about how, because I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Like, with Pearl Jam, it's hard for me to kind of, you know, isolate albums as being like one is head and shoulders above the rest in the way that like, like I would do that with the first two Oasis albums. Like those are obviously separate from what the rest, you know, like what Oasis did after that. And they kind of stand as moments, but I think you're right. There is something kind of like an ongoing thing with Pearl Jam where it might be harder to isolate oh, a certain album is. and raise it above others. Okay. Cause even, you know, like a lot of bands who have, long careers have put out many records the trajectory is often like this it's like it starts strong uh at some point the band seems kind of confused about what it is members leave sometimes some guys stick around they're kind of trying to it, it almost they, they kind of are almost like making albums just to subsist that they, they just kind of got to keep going and then maybe the members come back and they sort of put it back together again, and at the end, you see uh, the group succeeding because they're essentially replicating what they did at the beginning. Um, it's not like that with Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam is actually like the maturation of the band in public. Right. You can follow these records. If you, I think that if somebody had the desire to sit down and listen to every Pearl Jam record in order, and if they didn't know a lot about the band, if they, you know, if maybe if they were born after most of these things came out, so they don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine this person listening to this podcast. But if such a person exists, okay, somebody <laughs> who like wants to listen to Pearl Jam but doesn't know anything about them and listens to their records in order, I suspect that they would sort of be able to sense things that happened in the group, even though they didn't technically know that these things happened, because it's. They, they, every album Pearl Jam makes, they seems like they're kind of age appropriate. Right. Like it, it, it does seem to be in step with with like what their concerns at a given time would be. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Well, Chuck, I think I need to let you go. I got to get another guest in here after you. But uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate you making time to talk biology. Oh sure. And uh, 
you know, maybe maybe I'll have you back to talk about the seventy two live album. So maybe yeah, you well, s- you know, I'll have to spin a lot of black circles. <laughs> Were they all on vinyl too? Could you buy all seventy two on vinyl? I don't spin? think so. I think like the the packaging was like pretty like utilitarian. It was like this sort of cardboard thing for the CD, so it was like pretty bare bones. So I don't think they were ponying yeah, up well, for, and, and for vinyl. I'm glad I'm able to mention how terrible the packaging for Vitology was. <laughs> yeah, it's like that album and like all the Tool, or that Tool album, uh, 10,000 Days. I don't know if you ever had that album, but it's the same thing, like where it's just this bulky paper cardboard thing, and it, yeah, it just fucks up your uh, CD shelves. Well, especially for a guy who cared so much about his fans, he had to realize that most people had standard CD racks. <laughs> like, why would you f- make something that doesn't fit in there? Like, the Rolling Stones, I remember, re-released Some Girls, and it was really cool because it kind of looked like the record, but, uh, like, I ended up losing... It just screwed up everything because like, right. it have to be the right size. Yeah, I had the same thing with Sticky Fingers because it had... I think it even had the zipper on it for the CD mm-hmm. thing, and then, yeah, it, but it's so thin and small that I lost it, like, within a couple weeks. So... All right. All right, man. We'll take care. Bye bye. That was Vitology. Me and Chuck Klosterman breaking it down. Um, That was a lot of fun. You know, Vitology, it's a record I've talked a lot about. I've written about it. I was on this podcast called The Great Albums, which, uh, if you've never checked that out, I would highly recommend it. If you're a fan of this podcast, you will love The Great Albums. Um, I was on that podcast and I talked about Vitology for like two hours. (laughs) <laughs> like my, I was losing my voice at the end of that podcast. But you know, if you're going to talk about an album for two hours, you know, make it an album like Vitology. There's a lot to dig into with this record. Uh, so it was fun digging digging into it with Chuck, and uh, hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed digging with us. Uh, so guys, thanks again for listening. It's been awesome so far doing this series, Vitalogyology, digging into the Pearl Jams back pages um and we have some great episodes coming up so uh hopefully you've enjoyed the journey so far and uh you're gonna keep sticking with us as we drift even deeper and deeper into pearl jam land all right guys thanks again we'll talk at you next week